Hello, hello. Now if you be a lass from the low country Oh, mm-hmm. 
Okay, that was uh, Allen Ginsberg. They had a couple of Allen Ginsberg and paired that with Nina Simone, early Nina Simone, singing, uh, as I had never heard her, singing uh, folk songs, English folk songs. And uh, with her hair all nicely curled and a seductive look from behind a curtain. Not the real Nina Simone at all. Of course, we all think we know the real person. The great Nina Simone will certainly play some more about her. Of her, a little later on, this has been an adventurous morning. We struggled here with our uh, technology, as has been the case before, but we got it together. Thanks to Scott O. Walker and Pam, our station manager. We got it together. So, yeah, we had Nina Simone and then Allen Ginsberg with a couple of his very early one, one very early, one very late. Okay, Capital Air was with a rock and roll band towards the end of his life. In the 80s, Ginsberg embraced rock and roll. 80s, 90s. Um... Far from turning off, right? He he uh, started writing songs for rock and roll, and the other was from his some of his very first work called America. Uh, there was a time when you'd see Ginsburg walking around in Berkeley and giving readings and uh, doing his thing. And one night I had quite the uh, experience of hearing uh, Ginsburg read aloud in Wheeler Odd in Berkeley and uh, poems of these states. And I can remember the moment where he railed against the U.S. involvement in, in Vietnam and he yelled out as loud as he could, I hope we lose this war, I hope we lose this and the place just came apart. Most people knew that the adventure in Vietnam was ridiculous and silly. A lot of people went along with it thinking that was the way to show their patriotism. Sometimes people get those things mixed up. So this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And we're going to uh, talk a lot today about workers in Qatar. The, the um, the people who People who are putting on the Qatar extravaganza, I guess we'd call it. There's a big difference between them and people who are doing actual work. 
Okay, so let's see what we got. World Cup that changed everything. We'll look at a video. Our workers' deaths. Here we go. This football academy young players are showcasing summer children of migrant workers, the hosts of the 2020. Children's parents are enraged, engaged in football-related work. So we don't need this one. This one is full of... Okay. Um, let's see what we can play here. Let's listen. Okay. So what's happening in Qatar is this. Workers in Qatar or you know workers come from all over the area indeed all over the world to Qatar. And why why are they going to Qatar? Because there's work in Qatar. Working people have to conjugate around where work is. They have to collect there, collect around where work is because if they can't find work, they can't support their families or themselves. If they can't find work, basically, you know, they can't survive. So, the people in Qatar... In Qatar, there are about 3 million people. 90% of them are workers from outside. People who come to do the work for the native Qataris who are mostly pretty well off. Had a person, a uh, woman I know went to Qatar and worked in Doha 
capital, went to Doha and worked. And worked there for two years. Um, was controlled, I suppose the word is. She was controlled by by the authorities. She couldn't go out of a certain area in the city. No drinking allowed, which has become a big issue in Qatar now with games beginning in two days now, I believe. The government has reneged on a a promise to allow beer up to three hours before after three hours before the the beginning of the game and one hour afterward. Well now they've restricted even that. Um at any rate let's play a little music. Okay. And here we are in Mutiny Radio. Okay, so we're talking about Qatar. talking about Qatar workers and we're trying to get this station to work <laughs> okay looking for songs music um Also, after calling, calling for peace in the carnival, also all the
That's the clash. Let's go crazy from their Sandinista album.
who organized the 222 Spa Golf Cup is Qatar. Last September, the Guardian exposed serious labour rights abuses in Qatar, including the deaths of hundreds of migrant workers. Government said they're going to do something. So now, the stadium for the 2022 World Cup starts to rise out of the ground. We've returned to Doha, no doubt. The place to start is with the World Cup preparations. Football stars are being coached to compete against the world's best in 2022 by high conditioning coach. Only one thing On the 38th and 39th floors of offices occupied by the 2022 World Cup organizers. Some of the men who built these structures have become victims of serious labor exploitation. 
avoid the lavish offices they built, keep working, still waiting to be paid. Haven't paid me, he says. I've worked hard. Is also the president of the World Cup organizer. Budget was fifty-five million pounds. Factor who's saving. Stop the man wages. He says he wants to get home, but he doesn't have money. Problems here. Water, bathing. It's totally salty, the water. Even the drinking water is not good. A little mistrust has developed with our families. Obviously suspicious as to why I haven't had a salary for four or five months. My child keeps asking me, Dad, when are you coming back? If I get a call from home, I try to convince them that the company hasn't paid us for a month. Of course, they challenge us. Why did you go work with such a company? What kind of company doesn't pay? Why did you go there? We may as well just die here. When I call home, 
They say he hasn't sent any money. We took out a huge loan to send him there, and he hasn't sent us a penny back. We're about to lose our house. Tell him we can't assure him of his inheritance. They scream at me to talk to my husband. What can I say? I'm living in a sorry state myself. You get paid what you are promised, they're telling me. Indoor jobs, it might not be so, but for construction, it definitely is. Nobody has returned home. Some might have returned for personal reasons, because they couldn't do the work, or because they failed the medical test here. But so far, nobody has returned because they didn't get paid. Well, how can they return if they don't have money? That's my question. All victims of the so-called double contract. This happened to Sandhu Shrestha, another IBEX employee sent to Qatar by Capital International Management. Others suffer a far worse fate. According to Qatar's own figures, 882 migrants from India and Nepal died in 2012 and 2013. But most of these deaths were classified as sudden death, cause unknown, sometimes known as sudden death syndrome. One recent victim was Rishi Kandel, who died in May 2014. <laughs> The room where Kandel used to sleep is now used as a store. No one dares sleep there anymore. As simple as that. Couldn't sleep there anymore. Nineteen days after Rishi Kandel died in Qatar, his body was flown home to Kathmandu, where it was received by his wife, Saraswati.
I was shattered when I heard the news. I went with a dream to do something. I'm all alone. I also need to survive. I pray that what has happened to me doesn't happen to any other wives, sisters, or mothers. Qatar should do something to all families like ours. People from the poorest countries of the world are still being literally exploited here. Qatar's building boom. Now, as the construction of the stadium starts for the new World Cup, the question is whether the people's game, football, so many people love, can make a difference. Here at the Al Wakra Stadium, Qatar's first World Cup venue, construction is underway. The World Cup offers Qatar a unique opportunity to reform its labor system. There are signs the authorities are starting to recognize the scale of the problems their workers face. But will they grasp this chance? Will they turn words into action? Or will Qatar continue to allow its migrant workers to be treated as just another disposable commodity. Supreme Committee on any of its projects. So what the Qatar government is saying that they don't know about Lee. Qatar Project said it reported lead trading to the Ministry for Labor of Non-Payment of Wages. Every effort was made to repatriate the workers involved. We would be happy to engage in any effort, the Ministry of Labor. Okay, now of course you're talking about a country that's phenomenally wealthy. hire workers from outside to come and do the work while the Qatari people are taken care of. In that sense, it's a socialist state. <laughs> but it's also run by a group of people who seem not to care much about working people and whether or not working people are being treated fairly. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> Let's listen to another one. These are um, stories that the Bay Guardian. A series of reports. The Alwakra Stadium, the first venue to be built for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Eight years from now, the best football teams in the world will play in the stunning arena. 
So we're at the site of the Al Wakra Stadium, which is going to be a 40,000-seat arena for the World Cup designed by Zaha Hadid, the famous Iraqi-British architect. It's extremely hot, extremely dusty. They've been working here for uh, three or four months now, and it, it, it doesn't feel like a place where you'd want to play football at all. It's, uh, there's a sandstorm blowing around us. Um, but uh, this is the ambition that Qatar have, to turn places like this into international football arenas. Qatar's World Cup bosses have promised reform following an international outcry over conditions endured by migrant labourers. They granted us a tour of the Al Wakra workers' accommodation. They wanted to show us how things have changed. It was unlike anything we have seen in Qatar. Let me take you through the city. Uh, there's a local office in Riz, a huge space of hot food. Uh, the place was nice for them. And they Wi-Fi, they can communicate with their families, they can go inside. There's a food complaint register. You can complain about the food. You can complain about the food. So when they leave every day, the cleaners come in. When they come back, it's all clean. At any rate, let's see what the, some of the latest things that the Guardian has done here. Um, the Guardian reveals claims of labor abuses among subsidiaries of leading British construction firms. Alleged abuses include erratic or reduced payment of wages, passport confiscation, workers entering employment with high levels, of debt bondage and pay levels below those agreed when workers were recruited in their home country. Workers spoke of a culture of fear and intimidation with threats of arrest or deportation. Both companies say they are working within the parameters of Qatari law and rigorously monitor their labor supply companies to ensure good practice. Okay, here's what happens. Uh, it just doesn't seem to get through. All these, all these protests are basically being stonewalled. I mean, that's that's what we call it, right? Um, one guy, one big uh, Qatari official said about you know all these reforms that are needed to protect workers. He said, well. Said we're doing we're doing good, uh, you know we're doing a good job. He said, but don't let's get carried away. Let's be a little modest about this. Now there's a system, the kafala system. It says when you come into the country, into Qatar, you surrendered your passport. So if you decide you don't want to work there, you want to get out of there. You have to get the permission, basically the permission of Qatar. And it's contractors. These sheikhs decided that Qatar was going to um, welcome the whole world. And this is going to be a big kick up for Qatar and its business. 
And let's be straight, okay? We talked earlier about laws about beer uh, three three hours before and one hour after a game. And now the government has gone back on even that. So people won't be able to buy beer except in very, very strictly controlled circumstances and only for a little bit of time per day. How's that going to go over? <laughs> um, Qatar is cracking down on what it calls prostitution. Okay, we have to admit that when there's a big sports event like this or a big event in general, trade shows, you know, conferences, you know, whatever, there's a lot of men who ar- arrive and want to have sex you know, with prostitutes. This is a big, big industry in a place like San Francisco when there are big trade shows. Um, men and women, you know, arrive and, and prostitute themselves to earn money. It's a big big moneymaker for the economy. It's not saying it's okay. But in Qatar now, um, authorities are cracking down on women. If women are being, uh, women are outside without a man, for example. And so the crackdown is coming on women, not on men. And and let's be honest. The problem here is, a, is that there are too many, according to Qatar, there are too many poor people, working people. They just want to get their labor and get get to spec, step. And if you die, sorry, no. Gee, that's too bad. Let's not be modest. Let's be modest about it. So the rich people are going to be able to get whatever they want. That's the whole point of this. This is for the rich. And um, people who have the money to get to Qatar, to spend the money while they're there, to access, you know, services, to afford to go to the games... It's going to be a disaster for a lot of people. It's already being a disaster for the workers. Listen to Nina Simone. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, the Fifth World Congress of the International Trade Union Confederation. The call for a climate-just transition in Africa. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Take, take him, Antonin, set the neighbors to 
is Radio Labor. Let's above all reaffirm our commitment to build workers' power to change the rules of a rotten environment where workers are not sharing prosperity, where their families are not sharing prosperity. That is Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITFC is the organization which represents more than 300 national trade union centers, such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Together, the centers represent over 200 million union members. The Confederation is conducting its Fifth World Congress in Melbourne, Australia, November 17th to 22nd, 2022. The Congress is held every four years. Ms. Burrow, an Australian trade unionist, is the first woman to become General Secretary of the ITUC since its founding in 2006. It is extraordinary to be together again, and even more incredible to see you all in Australia and in my home city, Melbourne, the city that's the home to the Australian Council of Trade Unions, which, of course, is my own union movement. We, as trade unionists, are human rights defenders, labour rights defenders, in the largest democratic movement in the world. The ITUC family has much to be proud of, but we have much to do. It's why we are here at Congress, to renew our commitment to change, to change the working model that's abandoned working people and their families, to lay out our determination to win a new social contract with people and planet at the heart of a sustainable and a socially just future. And as we fight to actually get minimum living wages and, and collective bargaining respected, then I can tell you that the reality is even worse for the 60% of the people, our families struggling in the informal economy to make ends meet with no rights, no minimum wage, no social protection. We have a broken labour market. This broken labour market is seeing such insecurity in the formal and the informal sectors of our economy. And what it says is when governments fail to regulate and fail to ensure fair distribution of wealth, then what do we get? We get 500 new billionaires being created in 2021 in the middle of a pandemic, and indeed an increase in their combined wealth that's equal to just one year or twice the GDP of countries like in Indonesia, in just one year. And the wealthy with control of all that corporate wealth, and despite the massive increase in profits and productivity, still fight industrial laws. This country, in every country. They still fight against minimum wages on which people can live with dignity, despite the fact that that would contribute to an economy that was more robust. They definitely fight against the shared prosperity that we want through collective bargaining. So our fight continues to defend the right to share the wealth of nations. Let me also thank you for the privilege 
the unbelievable privilege of a lifetime working for you as our General Secretary. It's been a shared journey and we can proudly demonstrate the incredible strength of our movement. And I'm going to leave you with a woman's voice, Ilan says it all. She says, that's right, can hear her sisters. It's only when we are united in our advocacy for the human rights of every worker, no matter their race, gender or ability, that we are truly building a transformative union movement that fights for the liberation, the freedom for all of us. The UN Climate Conference, known as COP27, is continuing in Egypt with many trade unionists participating. Labor leaders are calling for a just transition as workers see their jobs radically changed or lost because of climate change. Africa is one of the regions being hit most hard by climate change, and so the demand for just transition there is increasing. One of the participants in COP27 is Rhoda Boateng. Ms. Boateng is a program coordinator for ITUC Africa. The ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Ms. Boateng spoke at one of the side events at COP27. We know that Just Transition has gained so much traction over the last um, four or five years, especially after its inception into the Paris Agreement, but most importantly also um, following the adoption of the ILO guidelines on Just Transition. And so, as we can see now, just transition has become a very common phrase. And oftentimes, even actually inter, inter, used interchangeably with climate. More and more, we are hearing just, trans, just transition because we've also already established that five, the climate crisis are with us. And we have come to the point where we've realized that we need to move, we need to shift, we need to transform our economies and societies. And this is why Just Transition has gained so much traction, because we want this to be done in a just way, in a way that will not um, reinforce the inequalities and the injustices that we have in our society, but a way that will not leave people behind. And most importantly for trade unions, a way that will not um, leave marginalized um, workers and the working class behind. And so... Um, just to establish that in Africa, it's a very peculiar case where we know that we have very high levels of, of, of unemployment, um, but then also the, 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 we also organize quite a good number of workers. Um, it's also important for us to establish that the workers that we organize are oftentimes found in the, in the, in the formal sector, where, whereas in Africa, we have a very huge level of informal workers or people found in the informal sector with high rates ranging from 70 to even 90 percent in some countries where you have a lot of people found in the informal sector. And so just transition for us actually means several things. And the way just transition will unfold in Africa is not how just transition perhaps will unfold or how we are seeing just transition unfold in different sectors or in different continents and in different parts of the world. And that is why this work is very important. And so maybe just coming specifically to how um, Just Transition is unfolding, um, it's important for us to establish that climate change is affecting us on various levels and also specifically in specific sectors. If you take certain sectors such as the agriculture sector, such as transport, 
um, sectors um, such as energy, um, tourism, etc. These sectors are all being affected one way or the other in a lot of different countries across Africa. And we know again that these sectors, or this means that um, um, workers are being affected. Or the people, who, the people who are found in these sectors are the ones who are being affected. And so workers have been affected in diverse ways. And I am, the ILO has established that work is going to, or climate change is going to affect workers actually on four different levels, where we see that some, in some sectors, work is actually going to be lost completely. Some workers are going to lose their jobs completely. Some workers are going to um, also re transform their work. And so if you take sectors such as the, the energy sector, and I'll give a specific example of um, um, South Africa, work is being transformed. And so workers who are found in sectors such as the coal mining sector, for instance, would have to go under transformation and work in new sectors and emerging sectors such as energy or renewable energy sector. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top story section included links to coverage of the opening of the International Trade Union Confederation's fifth global conference in Melbourne, Australia, proof that strike activity in the United Kingdom is rising to levels that have not been seen in decades, and reports of events and actions around the world as unions marked Global Fast Food Workers Week. But my favorite top story of the week was World Toilet Day, the day each year when unions join in reminding us all that in many workplaces, workers are denied the right to toilet breaks and to clean, sanitary, and convenient comfort facilities. Because in many cultures, this is a difficult subject, especially for women and LGBTQ plus people, this is an important health and safety issue which doesn't get the attention that it deserves. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news items discussing why women workers in Europe have been so hard hit by increased energy prices, reports from participants at the World Women's Conference, an event that brings together women trade union leaders from around the world during the days preceding the ITUC's global conference, and an interview with a union activist in Namibia about her struggles for gender equality. We also, unfortunately, have several reports of the arrest of a prominent trade union leader in Pakistan. Amim Ara is the General Secretary of the All Sindh Ladies Health Workers Union. She remains in custody after she led a demonstration demanding increased wages in which the police deployed water cannons and tear gas. Seventy of her comrades were also arrested but later were released. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week included items about a planned safety strike by Australian firefighters, the rejuvenation of the fight against asbestos in Zimbabwe, and the good news that Nigeria has ratified ILO Convention 190 respecting workplace violence and harassment. This means that as of this week, 22 countries have ratified the convention. Our current photo of the week is of a picket line at an Amazon facility in the Basque country of Spain, where last month workers there were warming up for the actions planned around the world as Amazon gears up for Black Friday. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity 
with trade union activists in Belarus, Turkey, the Philippines, Canada, Myanmar, and Kazakhstan. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Australia's Victorian Trade Union Choir with... And the union's inspiration through the world is not Chevron. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. For the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. That's it. Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Jumanan Raikuda.
Cooter with Bobby King.
And this is Labor History On this day in labor history, the year was 1996. That was the day that Chainsaw Al Dunlop lived up to his nickname. Under his leadership, the board of the Sunbeam Corporation agreed to eliminate half of the company's 6,000 employees and 87% of all its products. Dunlop had built a reputation for ruthlessly restructuring companies. His policy of implementing sweeping layoffs and plant closures earned him the nickname Chainsaw Al. In the mid-1990s, the company had several quarters of profits below projections. They decided to bring in Chainsaw Al. The day after he was announced as the CEO, Sunbeam's stock soared 60% just three days after taking the job. Dunlop declared to reporters, we've got too many people, too many products, too many facilities, and too many headquarters. He brought in consultants to review the company's operations and recommend drastic cuts. The resulting cuts were so severe that Sunbeam could not fill production orders. Despite this, Dunlop continued to promise record profits. 
Sunbeam's stock continued to rise by 1997, hitting a record of $50 a share. But the revenue reports were actually a result of Dunlop's creative accounting. In June of 1998, the house of cards came crashing down. Sunbeam's board met to discuss the company's woeful finances. Just two years after Chainsaw Al was brought into the company, he was fired. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission investigated what happened at Sunbeam and banned Chainsaw Al from ever holding another CEO position. In 2001, the company filed for bankruptcy. Such chainsaw techniques are not unique to Al or Sunbeam. Cutting workers to drive up stock market value continues to be a strategy for many CEOs. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1909. And on this tragic day, 259 coal miners died in a mine in Cherry, Illinois. The Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad opened the mine in 1905 to supply coal for their trains. Most of the miners were immigrants, primarily Italian. Many could not speak English. An electrical outage earlier that week forced the miners to light kerosene lanterns and torches. A coal car filled with hay caught on fire from one of the wall lanterns. The blaze spread to timbers supporting the mine. One of the survivors remembered, we stopped working as usual shortly before half past three o'clock and set out for the shaft. After we had proceeded about a half a mile toward the shaft, we detected a faint odor of smoke, which became more marked as we advanced until it was almost unendurable. Then we knew the mine was on fire and that there was danger ahead. Many of the miners did make their way to the surface and some then returned to the mine to aid others. Heroic volunteers attempted to rescue the trapped miners. 12 rescuers died. The mine shafts were closed off to smother the fire, but this caused many miners to suffocate from the mixture of carbon dioxide and nitrogen which built up. One small group of miners were able to survive eight days until their rescue by building a wall to seal out the fire and poisonous gases. They drank water leaking from a coal seam. As a result of this disaster, the Illinois legislature established stronger mine safety regulations. They passed a law that later developed into the Illinois Workmen's Compensation Act. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1903. Working women from around the nation founded the National Women's Trade Union League in Boston. The organization's founders included female reformers, working class women, as well as women from wealthy families. 
The purpose of the organization was to assist in the organization of women wage workers into trade unions and thereby to help them secure conditions necessary for healthful and efficient work and to obtain a just reward for such work. One of the inspirations for the Women's Trade Union League was the work of Settlement House organizer Jane Adams. The Women's Trade Union League recognized that women across economic classes were united by what they called the bonds of womanhood. Wealthy league members donated money to the cause. They often served as spokeswomen and arranged for legal representation for workers when necessary. When the league was founded, the trade union movement was male-dominated. The male trade unionists worried more women in the labor market would drive down men's wages. Often union leaders were unwilling to allow women into their ranks. The Women's Trade Union League was one of the primary organizers of female garment workers, particularly in New York City and Chicago. The league was a key supporter of the 1909 New York City shirtwaist workers' strike, also known as the Uprising of 20,000. The league was also a vocal advocate for the women's suffrage movement. The Women's Trade Union League disbanded in 1950. And in 1974, the Coalition of Labor Union Women was founded in Chicago to continue the fight to ensure women have a voice in the labor movement. However, women workers still earn about 80 cents on the dollar compared with men. The work of the Women's Trade Union League remains unfinished. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1881. That was the day that trade unionists held the founding convention of the Federation of Trades and Labor Unions in Pittsburgh. This group later changed its name to the American Federation of Labor. During the 1880s, it grew to replace the Knights of Labor as the most powerful labor union organization in the United States. The Federation of Trades and Labor Unions, and later the American Federation of Labor, were dedicated to the principles of craft unionism. Unions were organized by crafts. So workers with different jobs at the same workplace would belong to different unions. The Federation of Trades and Labor Unions focused on gaining collective bargaining rights and with it, better wages, benefits, and working conditions for its members. The creation of this federation marked a turning point in workers' struggles to improve their working conditions. However, not all workers or labor leaders were supportive of the idea of craft unionism. For example, Eugene V. Debs started the American Railway Union because he did not think the specific craft railway unions were an effective way to build worker solidarity in the industry. He wanted a union of all railroad workers as opposed to unions divided by job description. Nevertheless, the Federation of Trades and Labor Unions and the American Federation of Labor showed that workers could band together. By doing so, they could fight for a better standard of living and a better future for themselves and their families. The Federation of Trades and Labor Unions proclaimed that their goal was to organize a systematic agitation to propagate trades unions principles, to elevate trades unionism, and to obtain for the working classes that respect for their rights and that reward for their services to which they are justly entitled. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day the Screen Actors Guild voted to make all SAG members take an anti-communist loyalty oath. The late 1940s were the dawn of the U.S. Cold War with the Soviet Union. Anti-communist hysteria swept the nation. Hollywood became an early target of the communist witch hunt. Just a few days before the Screen Actors Guild vote, a group of screenwriters and directors, known as the Hollywood Ten, were called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. This group denounced the House Committee's trial. For that, they were sentenced to a year in jail and then blacklisted. The anti-communist this backlash had a chilling effect on Hollywood. Many in the movie industry were progressives, and some had actually attended meetings and other activities held by the American Communist Party. However, few of these movie industry people had actually identified as communists. The Screen Actors Guild attempted to head off continued congressional investigation by requiring union members to take a loyalty oath. Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time it decided to implement the oath. Those who were blacklisted saw their careers disintegrate. Many screenwriters wrote screenplays under assumed names. One notable movie, The Salt of the Earth, was made by people who had been blacklisted. The movie was a true story about a 1951 zinc worker strike in New Mexico. The Hollywood Reporter declared the movie was made, quote, under direct orders of the Kremlin. Blacklisted writer Dalton Trumbo finally was able to write a screenplay under his own name thanks to actor Kirk Douglas. Douglas supported Trumbo to write the screenplay for the acclaimed film Spartacus. He insisted Trumbo use his own name. Sadly, far too many were not so courageous during the Red Scare. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1936. That was the day that workers at the General Motors plant in Atlanta, Georgia, participated in a sit-down strike. This was part of a wave of labor organizing during the 1930s. Other General Motors plants in Kansas City and Cleveland went on strike. The most famous sit-down strike occurred in December in Flint, Michigan, where striking workers occupied General Motors plants for more than 40 days. The goal of these strikes was to unionize under the auspices of the United Auto Workers Union. The United Auto Workers was founded in May of 1935 in Detroit, Michigan. The union was initially part of the American Federation of Labor. However, when John L. Lewis formed the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the UAW left the AFL to join the new Labor Federation. This strategy was first used by CIO rubber workers in February and March of 1936. While it is believed that IWW members at the General Electric Works in Schenectady, New York, were the first to sit down as they protested the firings of three fellow IWW members in 1906, the CIO mastered the tactic of the sit-down strike. The method was effective because when workers sat down on the job, management was hesitant to use force to evict them. They worried about damaging production equipment. The sit-down also made bringing in scab labor very difficult. A 1939 Supreme Court decision effectively ended most sit-down strikes in the United States. Come away with me, Lucille, in my merry old mobile. Down the road of life we'll fly, automobiling. 
you and I. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1915. On that sad day, industrial workers of the world, organizer and songwriter, Swedish-born Joe Hill, was executed in Utah. In 1914, Hill was framed for the murder of a grocer and his son in Salt Lake City. The evidence was circumstantial at best. Hill was found guilty of the murders, even though no witness could identify him conclusively. The gun used in the murders was never recovered. And today, tied to a white kitchen chair, Joe Hill was executed by firing squad. Prior to his death, Hill requested that his ashes be mailed to IWW locals in every state except Utah. He also sent a now-famous message to IWW organizer Big Bill Haywood, in which he wrote, Don't waste any time mourning, organize. A century after his death, Joe Hill's inspiring charge is still printed on buttons and T-shirts worn by many labor leaders and union members. Many of Joe Hill's famous songs were set to the music of Christian hymns and popular tunes of the day, including The Preacher and the Slave, Casey Jones, and The Rebel Girl. Perhaps his most famous song, There Is Power in the Union, included the lyrics, There is power, there is power, in a band of working men when they stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power, that must rule in every land, one industrial union grand. Labor music provides the spirit of the labor movement, and Joe Hill was one of its great troubadours. Take time today to listen to your favorite labor song in honor of Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, live as you and me. Says I, the Joe, you're ten years dead, and never died, says he. I never died, says he. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Okay, Rick Smith's show. Find um, source of labor history. Listen, listen to it, and uh, you'll find out all kinds of things that are kind of routinely suppressed. We never hear about. Um, wanted to get uh, labor note. Here we go. Strike wave rocks Britain as unions confront the cost of living crisis. In Britain today, anyone asking a worker about the direction of the country is headed will be unlikely to receive a printable answer. Coming from crisis to crisis, the country is on its third prime minister of the year. Energy bills have skyrocketed by 96% since last winter, and rent has shot up by as much as 20%. While inflation, which currently stands at 12.3%, has been predicted to rise as high as 18% by the first few months of 2023. This is happening in a country that was first in Europe to register 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus 
and has already been subject to brutal austerity measures that have wrecked the social fa- fabric. Analysis, an analysis by the British, by the Trades Union Congress, the equivalent of the AFL-CIO, released early this year, found that British workers earned $70 less per month in real wages in 2021 than at the start of the financial crisis in 2008. Longest wage slump since the Napoleonic era. Where employees have offered any wage increases to combat inflation, they have still represented significant pay cuts in real terms. Not that the same rules apply to them. While pay offers to workers have generally veered between 2 and 6%, the average pay of an FTSE 100 chief executive shot up 23% with record bonuses being dished out. That's the 100 most, 100 largest companies on the uh, stock exchange. Well, it's about time for us to get out of here. Remember, this is Labor and Love Radio. Sorry for the delay at the beginning. We're working on it. Where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is. Where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. You wouldn't believe how important that is. What a uh, light into a person's real personality that is. Okay. Go out with... uh, Jack Kerouac. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. Good night and good work. Well, here I am, 2 p.m. What day is it? tree looks like a dog barking at heaven. Prayer beads on the holy book, my knees are cold. Morning frost, the cats step slowly. <laughs>
No telegram today, only more leaves fell. Castle of the Gandharvas is full of aging young couples. Early morning yellow flowers. Thinking about the drunkard. It's a This train's
Further west you walk, the browner, the hotter, and stiller and emptier the country gets. I met the hard rock miners, the old prospectors, the desert rats, and whole swarms of hitchhikers, migratory workers, squatted with their little piles of belongings in the shade of the big signboards out across the flat, hard-crust, gravelly desert, kids chasing around in the blistering sun. Ladies cooking scrappy meals in sooty buckets and scouring the plates clean with sand. The young folks in work pants and khaki whipcords, slacks and cotton dresses would gather around us and sing too. But sometimes they'd just stand there real quiet and listen. I knew what they was thinking about. Take a trip with me in 1913 To Cal, Michigan in the copper country I'll Take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see and watch the kids dance around the big Christmas tree There's talking and 